You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Hello, welcome to the Human Rights Talks podcast, a special podcast by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. In this special episode, we're going to talk about um, modernary digital authoritarianism. This is a project that is supported by the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa. And today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Peter Guest, who uh, is enterprise editor at uh, For Rest of the World, but he's also a journalist who focuses on uh, the intersection of human rights, technology and the environment. Uh, you have also been an editor in chief, a regional correspondent, a features editor, a producer, and you have reported from more than 40 countries. That's, that's a good career. Thank you very much for being here, Peter. Thank you very much for having me. So um, I want to start with a new uh, project that you worked on for the rest of the world um, titled In the Dark. I uh, encourage everyone to check it out on the website. So you and your colleagues sought to uh, understand how governments around the world have basically increased their control over the internet. How did you go about doing this and why did you decide to start this project? Sure. So the project's a culmination of a couple of years of work uh, looking into the growing issue of deliberate internet blackouts. So that's where the state, or in some cases the military, has shut down parts of the entire of the internet in a country to stop people communicating. So either with each other or with the outside world. Uh, this has happened like around about a thousand times in the past decade, and it mostly happens at moments of acute political pressure. So we've looked at it in Indonesia, in West Papua, where the independence movement is, is still ongoing. Uh, we've seen it a couple of times in Sudan, where the military first was trying to impose control and then when it was trying to keep control. And then very, very closely, we followed it in, in Myanmar after the coup there in, in February 2021. Um, we saw it this year again in, in Kazakhstan, last year in Belarus during the protests, and above all in India, uh, which is an area we cover extensively, uh, where the governments use localized blackouts time and time and time again. So those blackouts are, as we say, a full, full internet blackout, effectively pulling the plug. And they're very effective in shutting down uh, dissent and shutting down protests, but they're also very costly. So if you think about how much the modern economy runs on the internet, mobile mm. data, when you shut it off, it does enormous damage to the financial system, to, to the businesses. People can't pay for things, companies shut down, ATMs don't work. You know, so, so all these shutdowns have become more prevalent and we've kind of followed those. We're also starting to realize that people want an alternative to the blunt instrument. So governments are looking for much more subtle and targeted ways to control the internet, to sort of to simulate a blackout in a much more uh, kind of subtle and uh, an effective way. And they are finding them. So with that in mind, we, we went back uh, a decade, in fact, to start talking to people who have you know, worked under these blackouts. We talked to engineers, telecoms engineers and experts who've actually had to make decisions around these blackouts. We talked to people who tried to engineer solutions, uh, people who tried to run media outlets and NGOs where this happens, and just sort of get an experiential kind of ground up understanding of how this issue's evolved. Um, and then from that, tried to extrapolate what that means on a macro scale for, for the internet as, a, as an infrastructure, as a social and political space, and, and to send a, a bit kind of uh, hybrid out what the internet means as an idea uh, and how that impacts it. Wow. Well, it's a, it's a, so it's a long existing project in a way. I mean, especially if you go back 10 years, um, how have you seen the threats evolve over time in terms of internet infrastructure? It's a strange, it's a strange thing to observe actually, because the basic threat hasn't changed at all. 
you know, we first started seeing some degree of internet shutdown and sort of throttling, what we'd call throttling, which is basically slowing down services to make them unusable um, in Iran during the, the green movement. But the moment that it really took off, the moment that you really kind of realized that the, the potential for this was Egypt and the Arab Spring. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I remember reporting back then, you know, 2011, the height of the movement, just a couple of years before, everyone was completely started with the idea that social media was going to essentially free people. Mm -hmm. It was naive, perhaps, um, but there was this real power that people felt was in the hands of ordinary protesters, ordinary citizens. There was citizen journalism in, in Egypt in a way that there hadn't been under censorship and under the kind of print and, and uh, TV. And then in 2011, it's you know, right at the height of the Tahrir Square protest, the government just pulls the plug. When we were reporting on Myanmar last February, it was almost identical. It was the resonance was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. You know, the same the same approach, the same fundamental problem that a government had identified that they couldn't control the platforms that people were talking on, and they did exactly the same thing. They pulled the plug. So, in many ways, the threat is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. But as we said at the start, there's also a more subtle creeping control that is going on, um, and we can talk about the technology specifically that that are used to do that, but. I think as a, as a kind of a rather startling lesson <laughs> that we, we should have learned in, 20, uh, in 2011 and we're starting to learn now is that governments, particularly authoritarian governments with resources, are very capable of co-opting and controlling the things that we think are public goods or things that are, uh, are mechanisms for giving us freedom. They can turn them off just as easy as we can turn them on. Yeah, I think we were like Ethiopians at the time. And if you think about it, it was... Um... When you look at the way newspapers and radio was used by authoritarian governments, it's it's in the end it's it's the same as well. It's except for technology, I think the impact is 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 bigger. Um, in the um, in your research, you go quite in depth into Egypt as a case study, as perhaps one of the precursors of of internet disruption. How did Egypt end up being almost completely disconnected from? the global internet for like five years and why did you decide to kind of focus on on Egypt? So the reason we, we focused on Egypt I think is that it's a really it's a really good encapsulation of the entire journey of of this kind of control. So again as I said that we said there it was a precursor in some ways to the idea that social media could be a, a major determinant of uh, the success of a movement right it gave people the ability to connect it gave people the ability to to give voice and coherence to a movement that was otherwise, you know, very much street-led. And it wasn't the only thing, I think we had to be careful to, to, to be absolutely clear, you know, there were many other organizing forces, but social media was a very visible part of that movement. And the, the Mubarak government at the time was very alarmed, I think, by the, by the spread of the message, hence why they shut it down. Within weeks of the shutdown happening, the government changing hands, there were members of the, or there were parts of the Egyptian security services, and there's, there's multiple kind of reports and, and leaks around this, were beginning to build a more complicated architecture for censorship. Egypt hasn't had another major blackout since, since that time. Yeah. Many of the same people who were in, in government at that time are now back in government in Egypt. Um, I think we, you know, we can see the similar sort of figures in security services they have made it very clear they don't want that to happen again. And so what they've done is, is acquired technology. Mm. You know, some of it has been, has been acquired directly. Um, some of it has been acquired through proxies. 
They've acquired uh, censorship tools, so deep packet inspection tools, which again, we can talk about, but the tools which may give them much more control and power over what is censored and, and how they do it. They've deployed um, surveillance tools, which again, Pegasus has been made, you know, widely talked about the NSO groups, Pegasus. They've deployed a variety of different ta tactics to effectively make sure that the freedom on the internet that allowed people to, to rise up in the first place is massively restricted. And, and now we, we see Egypt as a major acquirer of authoritarian mm -hmm. technology and deployer of it. Can you go more in depth into perhaps some of the tools used, not just in Egypt, but more globally and how that has evolved? And also are these tools expensive? Sure. I think, yeah, this is a, this is a, a key part of what we've been working on. So one of the main things, and I apologize, I'm not actually a technical expert, so yeah. I, may make, I may make some rather... Uh, I don't rather, think we have a, much of a tech <laughs> audience anyway, so don't worry about it. Yeah, so I, I may make some, sort of, some, some rather like, broad um, analogies that don't necessarily hold water, but the core technology that we, we looked at, and this isn't the only one, but it is a major, major one, uh, is deep packet inspection. So at its core, the internet is, is, is a succession of pipes with data flowing around it, and the data travels in packets. So it's a little nugget of data, which very simply, oh, to oversimplify has two parts. Like one part is the routing information. So that's like the address on the envelope, who sent it, where it's going. The other is the content, right? mm -hmm. the, the payload, the bits inside the envelope. So traditionally when, you know, you, you, all you really needed in a network was that address. You know, you didn't need to look into the packet to know what was going on, you're just looking where it's going. And, and censorship was quite, was very possible using, you know, with that. You could just say, right, the site is blocked. So anything coming from this site, blocked. That doesn't really work if, for example, what you're trying to censor isn't a website, it's a service. So for example, it's Telegram or it's mm -hmm. a VPN, you know, virtual private network, which allows you to, um, to disguise where you're coming from. To do that, you need to look inside the packet. Deep packet inspection lets you do that. And the, the thing with it is, it's actually, it's actually a very innocuous technology. It was designed for network management, right? And it has completely valid uses. So for example, it's used to balance network ba bandwidth on the network. So you, it wants, if you want to, to, to run a variety of different services coming through your network, you want to make sure that, for example, your Netflix doesn't stutter. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure that any packet that you can identify as being uh, video streaming gets priority because no one's going to notice if the page loads in a second or two seconds, but they will notice if the, if the, if the um, streaming service stutters. So, you can use it for that. It, it's used in, in other instances. It's used in the UK, for example, to uh, try and reduce the incidence of child sex abuse imagery and, um, and pirated content. So these are valid uses for it. The problem is, because it is dual use, it can also be sold to pretty much anyone. And it can be used for censorship, which is what's happening in, in Egypt and a bunch of other countries. It's also being used in, you know, in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Jordan, a multitude of other countries we found it. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing I'm always also in a way fascinated about whether I look at Egypt in your article, but also Ukraine is how tech workers and bloggers always find ways to kind of try and circumvent all these techniques. They always find the little ways. I mean, how, how are there, how, what is it like in Egypt? How are they doing this? So are they basically holding the internet uh, together in a way, uh, as you say in your article? I mean, they are and they aren't. I mean, one of the most the, the most distressing and profound things I think that we we came across as we were talking, and, and we we had partic one particular individual, Nora Yunus, who's a journalist there um, and has been was one of the original kind of citizen journalists in Egypt and has lived the whole the whole experience, saying, you know, actually the censors are winning. They may have already won. So the idea that 
you know, we have this great kind of heroic ideal that people are managing this. And some of them are, absolutely, but not easily and not, not without a huge cost. Mm-hmm. So there are very few independent media outlets left in Egypt. You know, of all of the bloggers that, and kind of digital rights activists and people that, that I knew back in 2009, 10 in Egypt, none are still in Egypt. Wow. They've mm-hmm. all left. So, you know, you, people do get around it. They do. Um, but it's there's this constant attrition going on with them. Mm-hmm. So they may survive this time. They may find it, they may, as, as Al Manasseh, Nora's site does, shift between domain to domain to domain to get around the blocks. But every time they do that, they lose audience. They have to spend more money. They lose reporters. They lose supporters. They lose money. And, you know, they grind down and the government can outlast them. So people do get around it, but yeah. we can't guarantee that they're always going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really depressing th- answer. I'm sorry about that. No, 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 no. It's true. I mean, and one thing, speaking about depressing, one thing that I've we've been looking at as well is the ex- that more and more government are using these tools, but because they have the power to do so, they have the power to enact policies and to use the law. And one thing we've seen seen in like Nigeria or Russia is that they use laws and policies to kind of block social media. And, and, and or to get private information about users. Mm. How should social media companies, the ones created you know, in, in the US, for example, respond to such requests? Because I, I mean, what I've seen is that uh, platforms such as Twitter or, or, in, or um, in Nigeria, but also in Russia before Ukraine, they kind of just accepted it right um so how should they respond and why are they responding the way they did it's a really difficult question um and i think there are some nuances to set out so because we've seen this happen quite a lot in the last few years governments are being much more assertive in how they deal with social media platforms and to be completely clear that's not always because it's cause for concern you know mm-hmm. we have to think very carefully about this because big tech does not operate outside the law mm-hmm. or it shouldn't operate outside the law and you have to be sensitive to the facts, particularly if you're if you're in uh, another country. Having a big American tech company with opaque algorithms, in a sense, interfering in your politics, mm-hmm. you should and might be understandably nervous about that and want to protect yourself, right? And we're seeing that in Europe. Yeah, you, know, you see that as a citizen and as a voter in a country where disinformation and misinformation played a role in a fairly major political decision here. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of keen for some scrutiny. But there are different governance environments and Russia isn't blocking Twitter for the reasons it says it's blocking Twitter mm-hmm. and Telegram and Facebook. And you have actors in that country who've been habitually using those platforms to spread vaccine misinformation, political misinformation. Like there isn't an ideological opposition to misinformation in Russia, right? And they're defining misinformation and cybercrime as anything counter to the state narrative. So, and then again, you have a different nuance actually in India and Nigeria, which are democratic countries, mm-hmm. albeit with characteristics of authoritarianism, make it complex. So banning a social media platform which carries criticism of you is a bad look. And, you know, it's hard to make a case that it's not anti-democratic, but there are nuances that come from history and from, and from practice and from, and from the reality, right? And that's not to create false equivalents. So an authoritarian regime or a military junta, which is not governing by consent, isn't excused its demands for user data just because a liberal democracy is also making those demands. But there's context, right? The latter mm-hmm. is more likely to have due process and protections. So... It's a long amount of setup and context for, for an answer which is very going to be uns- very unsatisfactory, which is in, in terms of what they should do. I mean, this is uncharted territory. You know, if you're TikTok or Twitter or Facebook, do you block access to your service in countries where you feel the platform might be misused? Or 
do you break the law selectively? Do you choose yourself where the law is the will of the people or where the law is used to suppress free expression? And there's a kind of fashion, I think, to sit amongst people like myself to say, well, you know, define your values and live by them. But it's not a trivial answer. And I mm-hmm. think, honestly, the cost of doing business should probably be making the investment in figuring this out, right? Mm-hmm. Where are your values? What commercial compromises will you make to live them? Um, and that's something that only they can really figure out with advice mm-hmm. and by listening to people, which, yeah. again, is not particularly yeah. good at no, that's true. Um, speaking of Russia, how has Russia kind of become a pioneer in disrupting internet infrastructure? What kind of technologies are they using? Especially now as the, uh, with the conflict in Ukraine, we've seen a real crackdown on, on social media and VPNs. Yeah, so the, the Russian, Russian example is really interesting. And obviously we've seen a, an escalation in the use of this stuff since the start of the uh, quote-unquote special military operation. Um, Uh, the groundwork for that has been laid over the last at least five years. People mm-hmm. have talked about, about it certainly in that, in that period. It's a really interesting model. So as we, we talked about this in, in the piece, and I'll, I'll just kind of outline it quickly, like the difference between Russia and sort of the more traditional or the more well-covered censorship environments like China is mm-hmm. that those environments kind of have, they have censorship baked in, right? They built the yeah. internet to be censored. Yeah. Russia didn't actually. The Russian internet's been fair, fairly open with censorship, but also not very effective censorship. It's mm-hmm. been lackadaisical censorship. There may have been policy, but it wasn't necessarily enacted very well. And that's because the internet's just much more chaotic, right? The groundwork wasn't done. So there are, there are I mean, various different estimates and registrations of, of internet service providers ranging from 1,000 to 13,000. You know, um, there are hundreds of different companies, dozens and dozens of exchange points it's just a really difficult infrastructure to impose control over and it, it did seem like that was going to be really difficult to 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 do but they've made the investment they've done the groundwork now and using things like deep packet inspection first of all they made the the companies the internet service providers themselves uh, install uh, dpi technology to or rather they encouraged that they, they told them they had to do the censorship and, and dpi was the tool that most of them used because of its availability Um, and then they impose it directly. So mm-hmm. there's this thing called the TSBU box, it's sort of, um, it's a deep packet inspector built by a Russian company, which is at every ISP and it's controlled by the, the Roscommonsor, the, the state sensor. Mm-hmm. And that means that they can effectively impose censorship from the middle uh, at any time. So again, to be very clear, it's actually not as effective as they'd like it to be. It's mm-hmm. very effective, but it's not as good as they want it to be. Um, VPN companies are still keeping VPNs working, although they do disrupt at times. It's also not as, it's also quite patchy. We hear, you know, some people can get Telegram in some places, they can't in others, it slows down somewhere. Um, so it's still not, it's not a perfect system, but it's still a very, it's still a very sophisticated system. Uh, and as, as you know, one of the, the activists that we spoke to there, he said, like, every time they try it, they turn it on, it doesn't work very well. Next time they turn it on, it works better. And I think that's where we are now, is that they've now managed a mass scale test. It's, so it reminds me of the high expectations. I mean, expectations. We really feared the Russian army and, and had believed it was one of the strongest in the world. And they're now kind of in battle in, in Ukraine. And it's the same thing with um, cyber operations in, in Ukraine coming from Russia. We kind of, I know at the, at the very start of the conflict, There were, there were a lot of articles about, oh, this is, they're really going to use a lot of cyber attacks and cyber weapons and what are they doing? It's going to be massive and massive hybrid wars, but we haven't actually seen that much. I mean, it's been a lot about espionage, but we could have expected 
attacks on infrastructure because that's something that Russia had done in, in Ukraine uh, in previous years. Why did you expect more more cyber operations, and why do you think perhaps that Russia hasn't done so? So this is a difficult one because so the first thing I'm going to say is how do we know that that isn't happening? Mm-hmm. So we don't know the extent of what's actually going on and what's being mitigated. So we know that Ukraine had a lot of investment and support in its cyber defenses on top yeah. of an already very yeah. strong technology skills base. And frankly, a black market that was very proficient in cybercrime, mm-hmm. right? which is now, now you know, uh, should we say, gone, gone white hat. Um, so we don't know what's happening that just simply isn't showing up. Um, and the other thing I'd say is that cyber conflict isn't just about hitting infrastructure and undermining systems and public systems. You know, I think it's very clear that Russia has been involved in a major concerted hybrid offensive against mm-hmm. Ukraine and its Ukrainian supporters and the European Union that might support Ukraine for more than five years. So that's disinformation, that's interference in political processes, it's politically motivated hacks, it's anti-migrant messaging that undermines social cohesion. That's all part of cyber conflict and it's been very forceful and it's still ongoing. So it is happening, but it's maybe not in the form that we thought it would. It would take, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, what, I'm, two last questions that I want to ask you um, about the project itself and why you kind of wanted to, to do it and what kind of message you want to send. How is the physical integrity and in, in the internet as we know it today um, threatened by by the actions of these governments i know when i'm 38 so when i was born and the internet wasn't really there but i know i cherish it a lot because that's how i connect with my family in europe so why how do you see things evolving and why should we really do more to protect the internet as it is today yeah so i think you look at the threats in two different ways i do at least so there's a threat to the internet as an entity as a kind of a physical entity And what experts you you talk to talk about is this kind of subtle undermining of its integrity and its cohesion. So the internet is a kind of a miraculous thing, you know. Um, It's incredibly robust at a software level, although it kind of shouldn't be. It's kind of held together with string and tape and retrofitted equipment and owned by so many different actors. It's designed to keep working when bits go offline, you know, something breaks, something carries the load. And... If you want to impose control over it, you you have to deliberately put in vulnerabilities. So you have to start taking out the joists that hold it up. So whether that means legal vulnerabilities, whether that means physical vulnerabilities, software vulnerabilities, you know, you have to start effectively breaking it in order to to impose your will on it. And when you create a fragility in a a complex system like that, you create risks that threaten the entire thing. Mm. So you don't always know where those risks risks are going to come from, um, but they're there. And... You know, you look at, you talked about cyber, cyber conflict, and one of the things that was anticipated, I think, uh, at the start of the, the invasion in 2022, was that there would be uh, some more sort of cyber weapons released into the wild. Well, that's an example of it. Like NotPetya was, a, was an enormous mm-hmm. sort of, a cyber, yeah. piece of cyber, you know, there's a malware that was released. It exploited a very specific vulnerability in a, in a, in a piece of software that was used by, I think, a accounting company. But that piece of software was actually quite important you know, that back, that, um, that vulnerability spread. And so suddenly a weapon that was designed to take out one particular target had massive consequences across the internet, right? Mm-hmm. Large companies going offline, billions of dollars lost. And that's just one tiny instance of mm-hmm. you, you exploiting a vulnerability. And the system itself is not as robust as we hope. 
it's very robust, but it's also not, it's not invincible. So that's on one thing. But then there's also a kind of ideological threat uh, or an, you know, a threat to the idea, the internet as an idea, mm-hmm. right? So you just said it, you know, this is how you talk to your family in Europe. We're talking, you know, you're in Canada, I'm in London over Zoom. We're on the same internet. Mm-hmm. But if you start to impose borders on the internet, that starts to go away, right? And, you know, that you're imposing different levels of control does mean splitting up the internet. You know, you see countries like Russia, Cambodia, Vietnam, they've actually quite explicitly talked about having their own internet where yeah. their version of reality is the only version of reality. And, you know, one of the most, I think, profoundly disturbing it's not the most probably disturbing maybe we should go back on that but one of the things that i found disturbing this week is looking at, uh, at the internet going out in kherson in ukraine and then coming mm-hmm. back on again and the occupiers turned off the ukrainian internet and reconnected the russian one mm. there was a parallel invasion of cyberspace with real space and it yeah. just just profoundly shows the what, what it means to put borders up on the internet. And, and I mm-hmm. think that's actually, that's an undermining of the idea of it. You know, I'm the same age as you. you yeah. I grew up with this as a, uh, as a public good that felt that we've taken for granted, frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, my last question was actually coming from one of your tweets um, about <laughs> Elon Musk and, and buying, buying Twitter. Um, Twitter, who uh, that is, yes, very influential, but in a way not mm. very profitable. And there's, there's been so much talk about it in so many articles. But do you think we should perhaps focus a bit more um, on actually protecting the internet as it is and what should governments do or, 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 or we as, as, as kind of users? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I have very mixed feelings. So I've been trying to think about how I feel about the Musk deal. Um, and, you know, I didn't even follow him until this. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether we should separate the personality from the company. You know, yeah. how much is he actually going to be able to execute? What does he mean by free speech? And what does he understand of it? Um, I mean, I would argue maybe that this kind of oligarchical approach to running mm-hmm. the new software, the new internet, right? The social media platforms, big tech, where you have these individuals who have outsized influence on things that, you know, charitably or outside their understanding, um, it's pretty challenging. And, you know, a decision made by an individual in Silicon Valley based on a misdiagnosis of a problem he's half mm-hmm. read about inside his filter bubble, like that's not ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw that with the Facebook leaks last year, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you see a very narrow view of the world that's reflected in pretty bad policies. And you mm-hmm. read the internal messages in those leaks and you think, oh my God, if, if there was one person from Myanmar on your board or one person who'd lived as a refugee or one person who'd been a victim of violence in Ethiopia, you would not make these judgments. But No, they but they, they've never felt victimized in their own in their lives, mostly. So. Precisely. And I think that's the point, right? We see these tech companies, infrastructure companies, social media companies making these decisions based on an understanding of the world, which is mm-hmm. short, sclerotic, yeah. um, astigmatic. It's not. Yeah, it's not reflective of the influence that they have, and mm-hmm. so, but it's as we said earlier, it's it's on them to solve that problem. Ultimately, uh, we don't have mm. the power to change those things. They are they are private companies. They are opaque in their decisions. Yeah, although when it, if you're in Europe or here in Canada, governments are actually taking a bit more of a of a of a stand. I, I mean, in the US it's very different, but in Canada and, and in Europe, I know I know we have a different vision of, of, of freedom of expression for sure. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us today, Peter. Um, I encourage everyone to follow Peter on Twitter as long as you're there. 
uh, and uh, to read all your articles on the rest of the world. I think you also uh, sometimes write for other issues. I've read you in the Atlantic as well in the past. So thank you very much for, for being here with us today, Peter. Thanks a lot, Marie. It's been great fun.